you know, don't treat the symptom, treat the disease. So like when someone comes in and we have this issue, it's like, oh no, like, you know, we had, we, maybe we had this issue with this campaign. It's like, well, that's the symptom. What's the disease? The disease is way up the ladder. We launched this thing two weeks ago without a QA process. And, you know, we didn't have this. So it's like, what's, I just started to see things much differently. And I think that just came with, with age and self-reflection. That's Seth Godell, CEO of Canahoma, a boutique education marketing agency playing at the intersection of beautiful brand creative and effective direct response marketing. Seth shares his career journey on this episode of Leadership Backstory. We learn how a career start in broadcast news set him on a path to working for some of the biggest brands in higher education. From UCLA to SNHU to Helix Marketing to National University, each made him a better leader and prepared him to found and lead Canahoma. There are lots of leadership lessons packed into this episode. I'm Peter Barron. My co-host, Brendan Schneider, and I learned a lot, and we know you will too. So let's get started. So Seth Odell, welcome to uh, the backstory. You know, I'm trying to think. We first met each other, Seth, in, I'm guessing it was 2012. You and I were at a conference down in Florida. Yeah. But I had known about you before. And like, I've got your LinkedIn profile up in front of me right now. And there's some things on here that I didn't know. For instance, you were a TV producer at a couple of, it looks like at a couple of stations, assignment editor. Yeah. But then you dove into higher ed and and clearly like that entrepreneurial spirit that we see as you now being the CEO of Canahoma, a company that you founded, started to emerge because I remember higher ed live and all the things, but I, we'll get into all of that, I'm sure. But, but talk to us a little bit about you know, how did you get on the path of like media and then into higher ed? And like, what were some of the things you learned early on in your career? Sure. Um, so, so I grew up in upstate New York. I went to college uh, in upstate New York, originally at SUNY Oneonta, transferred to the College of St. Rose, small private school uh, in the you know town where I was from. Uh, got a communications major, uh, mostly because I thought it might be easy and it didn't have that much math. Um, and I like to talk. And so it was just sort of like, I fell into it. I initially wanted to do like music business. And I think I finally wised up that, um, that's a really tough road. And so I, I went to communications, uh, the program at St. Rose was pretty great. It had like this three pronged approach of like PR journalism and then broadcast news. And so I knew like the only thing I didn't want to do was broadcast news. Like I hated those classes. It was terrible. And so, you know, graduated on the Saturday and on Monday I started in, in broadcast news because uh, it was the only job I could find. And I was getting yeah. paid nine bucks an hour to be a desk assistant at a local news station, WTEN. I was, you know, ripping scripts uh, for anchors and running teleprompter and answering the phone. I had a brutal shift, right? I worked like three in the morning to, to or 3.30 in the morning, 9.30. And then I came back in the afternoon to the evening news from three to 6.30. And then I uh, worked at a coffee shop from seven to midnight. And like just slept in like two shifts and, um, you know, hustled my way into an assignment editor role, a uh, full-time gig, $25,000 a year salary. At the time I thought I'd really earned it, but it turned out that uh, nobody else wanted it. Uh, and so, uh, <laughs> just kind of like stumbled How did you in. find that out? How did you find out nobody wanted that job? <laughs> uh, mostly because it had been open for like four months and they were I like, finally it. they just called me and they're like, you're like the new guy, but you're like, you're working really hard and you're trying. Um, and I was local. So like, you know, an assignment editor's job is to like, help assign stories to reporters to follow the police scanners and just because you know i was local my parents were local like i actually knew a lot of folks and so you yeah. know if something was going down in a nearby town like you know my dad's friend was on the planning board or something i could call somebody and so even though i was kind of a kid i was able to like you know hook up some access um and so just just nobody wanted it and they gave it to me yeah. and i took it and uh uh 
I did that for like a year and I looked around and everybody in the newsroom was really depressed or divorced. Um, and it just felt like, oh, this is like going to be a rough go if I if this is what I do, even though I liked the work. Um, and so, yeah, just decided to pick up and move to L.A. kind of on a whim. Uh, and, you know, uh, my ex-wife and I both wanted to live out there. She wanted to be near the beach. I wanted to be by the mountains. L.A. kind of had both. And um, right. I was just ready for a change. So but I just honestly stumbled into TV news just because it was there and it was something. And that was about the only criteria I was using at the time. So how did that propel you into higher ed? I mean, what was the, what was the, what were the synergies there? Uh, so, you know, when I left TV news, I, I really was like, okay, maybe I can translate this into PR. So I'm con- was constantly trying to like trade up and like, like, okay, how can I leverage from here to the next thing? And so I was like, okay, I can get in from media relations into PR maybe. And so I, when I moved to LA, I was like, I really want to work at like Edelman. Um, and, you know, get into some PR firm and, you know, like all things in life, I thought I had a job lined up. I show up, the job's not there. I end up working in construction. I remodeled Dr. Phil's kitchen. Um, and I was like an assistant general contractor. Um, that is awesome. And just was like, I mean, I worked the, I was also working as a production assistant. I, I worked the groundbreaking of the Ritz Carlton hotel downtown with the governor, like the, literally like 12 hours after I arrived. So there was like, Definitely like a classic like hustle mentality. Um, and you weren't and even then, an actor. No, definitely not. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and just you know the, this job came up at UCLA, um, and I I got really uh, like most of my things in life for a combination of like luck and privilege and a little bit of hard work. Um, the luck was that they were hiring a media relations assistant, and they really wanted somebody with TV news experience because like everybody who worked in the office was from the LA Times, and so like hey you know and... there was like we should get someone from TV news to round us out. Um, and uh, my sister-in-law had worked at that department like previously a couple years earlier and she knew somebody. So she was able to get me an interview. Um, and, you know, so between that luck and privilege, uh, landed a job at UCLA that was relatively entry level. Um, but that's how I got into doing media relations at UCLA was my entrance into higher ed. Yeah. Well, right around that time, when did you start doing higher ed live? So like, I'm going to try to set up higher ed live, but I, I'm probably going to like mess it up so just you no, know, edit no it. Worries. but i remember that's how i got i was like oh this guy seth yeah. odell he's doing it was like a it was a it was a video blog before there was a video blog right i mean it was yeah. like you were way ahead of the time and you had interviews it was a whole thing and now that i'm hearing your broadcast news you know experience i'm wondering i'm guessing that must have fed into it somehow but it became a thing right like talk about that it did so you know the the store the long and short story was i was working at ucla i had a lot of ideas but i didn't have a lot of um influence and so um i took every opportunity i could i I kind of became their videographer my boss asked me one day do i know final cut pro and i lied and said i did and then like (laughs) the next day i was sitting down filming the chancellor and like two weeks later i was with general wesley clark and then bonky moon and like because ucla has all these amazing people coming and i just like became the videographer um, and at the same time, it become like the social media guy. So I set up UCLA's initial like Twitter accounts and worked with the team on their Facebook accounts and, and YouTube and set up a partnership with YouTube when YouTube EDU was first coming out. So I was like hustling to do this social thing and, you know, do this video thing. But I was still a kid. And so and it was a traditional bureaucratic organization. And so I felt like stuck. I kind of felt like I'm not going to get where I want to get to. And I, I read a, a great book called Crush It by Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah. I read that in 2009 and it totally changed my life. Um, so I, it basically talked about building your personal brand and and pursuing your passions. And so I realized if I was going to get anywhere in education, like I had to like prioritize my personal brand. So, uh, you know, I came up with this idea. Initially, I was like, well, maybe I'll do a podcast. 
Um, but then I was like, you know, I, I can do like live video and nobody else can really do that right now. Cause it was just Justin TV had come out and live stream and used to, it was very yeah, right. early. And I just yeah. liked that stuff. And so, um, I'd sent out a tweet that was like, Hey, you know, if I did a, a live weekly web show would people watch and a lot of people on Twitter responded and said, yes. And I got a phone call, um, from Michael Staten, who at the time was founder of integral, which became university and was acquired by target X. And he's like, Hey, if you do this, I'll fund it. Uh, and so like I had like sponsorship uh-huh. like an hour and a half after tweeting about this thing. <laughs> now you got to uh, do it. Was, <laughs> yeah. And it was it, and, and credit to Tony Zanders now of uh, skill type who, who actually coordinated with Michael to make that happen. And so then I had to figure out how to do it. And so I basically ended up with this live weekly talk show from 2010 is when I launched uh, till 2012. And every Sunday I'd bring on guests and to be really transparent because that's the goal of this, this show that you all have. I made a list of the 40 most influential people on social media in higher ed. And then I invited them to be my first 40 guests so I could siphon their audience to mine. And I was like, okay, I'm going to become like friends with them. And and I'll be honest, I don't looking back, it's a little cringe, but the funny thing is like, I've made like real life friends. Like I actually like literally like, you know, like was like the officiant at someone's wedding, uh, Mike Petrov from Harvard. Like I'm lifelong friends with like, you know, Mallory Wilsey and Ashley Budd. And so it like, it became this like real thing and real friendships. But at the time it was Mm -hmm. like, how can I just like, become somebody because nobody at UCLA cares what I have to say. And so I built this live <laughs> weekly web show. I brought people on. And in hindsight, yeah, we were really early, like to be 2010 and you're bringing people on. I had to use five different softwares. There was no way to do this. And so I had to like literally stitch software together and figure it out. And it became a thing because it was live. And so on Sunday nights, you could come yeah. on. I'd interview someone from higher ed. You could ask questions in real time. I'd pull up the Twitter thread. And we'd answer questions and, you know, it was like, honestly, in hindsight, it was really cool. And so I did that for two years and that like really elevated, you know, my voice um, gave me a chance to learn so much though. Like I learned so much from everybody else. Um, And just Uh like, it opened up so many doors and like, I still to this day, I can track my career success all the way back to higher ed live. Um, And that is really the catalyst that changed so much for me. And so that was, yeah, I did that for two years. Until candidly, I burned out. I mean, I just was like, I did over 100 right. episodes in two years. I only right. missed like two weeks um, the whole time. And it was just, uh, so I flamed out and uh, sold it to M. Stoner, uh, who did a wonderful job stewarding it. And most people know them as the founders of it because like, I was so early in it. Uh, and, and amazingly, it's, it's still around today, which is just incredible. That's something that I built 12 years ago is still still around and functioning in some form. So that's a little bit about higher ed life. But that is like, that's the that's the moment and the catalyst for me in my career, I think. Well, did you know it at the time? Like, did you know that was your moment? No, that's such a great question. Not at all. I was so stressed. I barely even enjoyed it. And I think that's like a, like, yeah. you know, you come on a podcast like this and I wish I had like brilliant lessons for people because I've been very blessed with success <laughs> in my life. Um, mm-hmm. But I have not enjoyed nearly enough of it. And so Higher Ed Live was like such a blur um, there were some moments, you know, there was like when we had shows with like hundreds of people watching, it was really cool. Um, but I don't think I slowed down at all to realize like this is a big deal. Um, and if anything, like just soak it in. You know what I mean? Like enjoy this. Yeah. Um, so no, I missed it completely. And I think it took um, hindsight to realize the impact that it had. Did Yeah. I mean, Seth, when we first met, I putting that together, you and Higher Ed Live, I still remember that. That was unbelievable. Did was there any other opportunities that came out of that? Oh, because you were raising your personal brand, raising the level of that? So many. So um, so I was at, I was doing higher ed live and I was working at UCLA. 
uh, and I got a second, a different job at UCLA, a great promotion under an amazing woman, um, uh, Minnie, who was just became a mentor for me. Um, and I got recruited to Southern New Hampshire University because of someone I met and had had on Higher Ed Live. And so, like, wow. I would have never gone to Southern New Hampshire University, which, you know, in a, for people that know me, most people know me from my work at Southern New Hampshire University. Yeah. I was there for four years during, when they grew from 7,000 to 70,000 students. Um, yeah. But I joined in 2011 when they were relatively unknown. And it was kind of a big deal for them that they got someone at UC, from UCLA, even though I was like not <laughs> high up at UCLA. Um, well, well, and I well, only Seth, got that job because of higher ed life. And you know, just to kind of set the context here, because you can't undersell the, the work that you and the team did at Southern New Hampshire University. So I am from I'm from New Hampshire. I grew up in Concord, New Hampshire. I actually went to middle school directly across I-93 from yeah. then New Hampshire College. <laughs> yep. And it was just a place that, you know, I think people always thought, uh, you know, is it going to make it? Is it not going to make it? And so I remember when you went there, I, I, the perception of, I mean, when did they when did they change from Su New Hampshire College to Southern New Hampshire University? Do you remember? Oh, that's a great, you're going to test my history. Someone's going to call me, I'm pretty sure it was in the early 2000s. So um, the early made 2000s. The name change. Yeah. And so I just remember when you went there, and I don't know why I knew you went there, but I somehow, in fact, I think that's where we met is when you were working at yeah. SNHU. I'm like, why would he leave UCLA to go to SNHU? Like, that doesn't make First off, you're yeah. in Los Angeles to go to Manchester, New Hampshire, which is a <laughs> lovely place, but during the middle of winter, ain't Los Angeles. Like, yeah. I was trying to, in my head, figure it all out at the time. It's a great question. So I think there was two things going on. One was why leave UCLA, and the other is why go to Southern New Hampshire. Uh, you know, the why leave UCLA was that, you know, both my ex-wife and I wanted to get graduate degrees. Um, and for, and we were, you know, looking at USC and other places, and with you, you know, I was like, how am I going to really spend $50,000 on a master's? when I know that I work in an industry where many employers will provide it for free. And so I Man. started to be like, maybe I should go work somewhere for just like a couple of years, get my master's and then come back to UCLA or somewhere else if I want to. Um, so there, that was why I started to like be ready to leave. Um, and UCLA had a rule that you could only get a 10% raise per year. So when I got my promotion in my third year, they couldn't even pay me the bottom of the pay range because they said, your skills are good enough to get this job but we can't even pay you the bottom rung of it wow. because the state says you can only get a 10% raise. So I knew, okay, I'm, uh, I, I, I can't stay. This is my growth is totally capped here. Um, so I started to be ready to leave. For SNU, it was uh, purely the, probably the only smart thing I've ever done in my life was just, I could t just see so clearly, and maybe it was my experience with Higher Ed Live and how fast the internet yeah. was evolving and social. I just knew online education was going to be huge. And while online education was poo-pooed, like I got laughed out of UCLA by a couple people when I left that literally you're going to go work in online education. Like that is so beneath us. Um, and I just somehow knew that like, you know, that, that opinion is going to fade in time and every day we're going to move towards more and more acceptance of it. And so I think I just got lucky that I went to Southern New Hampshire, not any number of other schools that were trying to do online at the time. Um, and that was where, again, like luck plays into my career path. But I definitely was intentional about, um, you know, OK, if I already have this traditional big R1 public experience, let's go get some online private experience and let's diversify, you know, what I know. Um, and so just I wanted to get an online ed in 2011. And I think that's like the only smart call I've ever made. And it's definitely paid. Dividends. I think you've made a couple of smart calls. <laughs> yeah, get to come those, on. But, so, uh, yeah, please, please. I'm curious because, you know, I, I've been fascinated by SNU for a long time for, you know, A, being being from there and B, just seeing it explode and be this, you know, just this market force. I, in fact, I remember sitting out here 
in you know in Seattle. And this was early when we first moved out. Maybe it was 2012. And seeing and at, was did, were you running national ads then? Did, did, uh, did they show I, up? They st- I started doing national ads with them when I came into 2011. They were testing and piloting some some work, um, and in 2012 is when we really pushed nationally uh, aggressively. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember sitting on the couch and I might have watched a football game. I can't remember what it was, but then there was like this SNHU commercial. I'm like, what is that? Are you <laughs> yeah. kidding me? Um, but I think it's there's a couple, there's a lot of interesting things that happen there, and I and I want to understand how they relate to your career. So a lot of people know Paul LeBlanc. Like he's the president and just a force and a brilliant person and a very generous person um, as well. How did his leadership allow you to grow? Like, I'm assuming you didn't report directly to him, but there must have been something in the air that said, Seth, like, go do crazy things, go think outside the box. Yeah. Or, or am I misreading it? No, no, you're not. So there's a this. Uh, so I, I definitely didn't report to Paul, um, but, you know, Paul was the very first person I met. I walked in the front door and he he was waiting and greeted me. Um, wow. I had had a blog, like, tracking my trip cross country and he had seen it. And uh, so it was just, that was like really wonderful. So I had a relationship with Paul from the moment I walked in. Literally, he was the very first person I met at Southern New Hampshire when I showed up that day uh, when I moved there. Um, so Paul had hired an, a brilliant individual, Steve Hodowns, who ended up becoming a mentor of mine to really run the online division, the College of Online and Continuing Ed. Um, and, you know, Paul did a brilliant job of setting a bold vision and then like letting the team run. Um, and like he was, he's not a micromanager and like set a big vision and let people figure out how to get there. And so Steve had a lot of autonomy to build his own team and to be focused. And Steve was really running, you know, like a business and looking at, at how to scale this and operationally. And so, um, my relationship with Steve was what really transformed my opportunity at, at Snooze. So I never reported directly to Steve either. So I worked one, one rung underneath him. Um, the, the kind of the short version of it. On, the, on that side was that about eight months in, I actually resigned and I was going to move back to LA. I got a job at USC. Um, and there was a lot of uh, reasons why the first few months at SNU weren't great. It was, it was just not the best environment. Um, I had some challenges. Um, and so it just was some folks there. Uh, they ended up you know exiting some other folks. And like what long story short was they tried to keep me. Um, and the, you know Steve was like, what do you want? And I said, I, I again, really... I don't know where it came from. I said, I want one hour of your time every week uninterrupted and I set the agenda. Uh, and so I ended up getting one-on-ones with the CEO of the online wow. division for the last three years. And and that was where I learned everything. And But that level of access was like not foreign. Like Steve had an open cubicle office um, just in the middle of the floor with everybody else, walked around with flip-flops. Paul would show up and walk around any time. Um, and, you know, the anecdote I'd share to give you a cultural idea, you know, I'm probably best known for like the bus tour work I did. If folks aren't familiar, yeah. we drove yeah. these buses across the country and like personally delivered diplomas to online students who couldn't make it to graduation. And like, we literally did that. Like I was literally on a bus for 46 days in 2013. But when I pitched that idea, the two people that were the most supportive were Steve and Paul. It was all their other leadership that were extremely hesitant um, and I, I say that not to diminish the leadership. They were doing their job, but to say that, like, that seems very counterintuitive, uh, that your biggest leaders, your CEO and the president who the CEO reports to, are the ones who are the most green light, go, big ideas. You know, you can't spook us with how crazy your ideas are. Um, and they let their leadership around them be the ones that try to filter that, correct that, you know, manage risk and mitigate and, like, figure out what's right to do. Uh, that was really what gave us so much runways that we knew that like the leadership at the top is bought in 
um, in a really big way. And so that was just interesting. For the rest of my career, it's always been the boss is the most conservative and getting to the boss is, is its own experience. Um, and so it was, yeah, that they, Paul just created an environment where um, we were going to push this as far as we thought we could push it. Uh, we felt like missionally that it was our obligation and opportunity. So they did a great job of setting this vision that, you know, if students don't come to us, they might be coming to, you know, a for-profit institution that doesn't have their best interests. And so it really felt like we were doing important work. Uh, and then they just gave us the space to do it. How, how did how did that lesson in uh, form your leadership philosophy? Because I'm guessing, you know, you're what, probably six, seven, eight years into your career at that point. Like what yep. were you starting, what was starting to trigger in your brain? Uh, so I that snooze were the first time I had started managing people. Um, you know, I had managed student workers before, but I hadn't managed people. I went from managing up at one point, you know, over ten folks, and then back down to one. I really struggled as a manager early on, um, and so I will say most of the lessons I got from SNU, which I mean, it pays dividends even today. Um, it took time for me to understand. Um, SNU was a t- challenging chapter for me. Um, the culture Steve created was very sports ish like a team um and like like it's a little bit like kobe like anybody can call anybody out for anything if they don't think they're pushing hard enough and so to me as a younger it was very aggressive culture it was a very direct culture um but in hindsight it was actually just a very transparent culture and like uh but for me i'd never like had to figure out manage my ego so i always felt like i was under attack all the time um and and again in hindsight it wasn't this was just you know i was working with people 20 years older than me who were comfortable sitting in a room saying like, I'm not confident in the plan you've put together. And like, I'm not sure that you're capable of achieving this. Like, give me more, like, and like that, those are like tough wow. old questions. But for me <laughs> as a kid, I'm like, they're challenging me personally. It's like, no, like they're, they're being bold enough to share their actual feeling and concern. Don't you want right. that? Um, right. And so that was, SNU was hard in that sense. The other part was I'd never been a manager. And so we were moving so fast. Um, I, we were growing quickly. I had three jobs there. I ended up just uh, inheriting a lot of people pretty quickly because like the job I came in to do, like became a team of like, you know, at one point, like nine people doing the thing that I was doing myself 20 months earlier because we were scaling. Um, and I, no one had taught me how to manage folks. And so, um, you know, I, I don't think I was a great boss back then. I had really, really high expectations. Um, and if I made people feel bad if they didn't hit them. Um, I was never mean, but like they could just tell I was disappointed all the time. I would jump in and like correct and do work, uh, rather than like respecting the time it takes to give feedback and space for someone to grow. So I was always this, like, just do it myself, bowl through a wall. I'll stay up all night. I'll sleep at the office, um, mentality. And I, well, the lesson I hadn't learned then was that like, you know, when you become a leader, your success is the success of your team. And so like I was still I was managing from the mindset of an individual contributor. And so I was like almost resentful of my team because they kept me from all the work that I had to do. And they made it harder for me to do my work because I failed to realize that my work was their work. Um, So SNU taught me a lot, um, but I I don't know that I learned a lot of them in the moment. I I, when I left SNU in 2015, I was pretty burned out. um, And I think it took some time for me to reflect back and realize like, how unbelievably informative that experience was. Well, and to give you credit, like reflection, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist, scientist, or anything. I don't have any data in front of me. I'm just talking from self experience. Like I've just found that as I've gotten older, reflection has become more important part of my yeah, like daily totally. habit. 
right? It, it was not when I was 25. Yeah, yeah it's the same. I was just uh, completely. I and I when I moved to Utah after I left SNU, I, I ended up picking up meditation uh, and working with a therapist that was also a Kundalini yoga instructor. And uh, so you know that I I spent a lot of my life avoiding the pains of self reflection. Uh, rather than realizing that, like, you know, uh, the way out is in. And, like, I- I've learned a lot the more I've slowed down to think about those things. So it's definitely, yeah, with age comes wisdom, I suppose, yes. and self-capacity. Yes. You know, and I'm start- I'm seeing, like, you know, at UCLA that that spirit of entrepreneurism started to cultivate. And I-, I wouldn't be surprised if you tell me that, hey, I was the person on the corner selling lemonade when I was a kid. Like, I don't know 100%, if you- hundred percent, yes. Yeah, okay. So I booked I my first- <laughs> My, I booked my first concert when I was 14 years old. I forged my parents' signature to rent the town hall and put on a punk concert, ra- oh and then raised God. 17 or $1,400, and then I gave all the money it. to charity because it wasn't about the hustle, or it wasn't about the money, it was about the hustle, rather. And so I was totally that. I, I had a newsletter yeah. in middle school um, about mullets that I got in trouble for. Uh, <laughs> like, I was always doing something, always, 100%. And I did the lemonade stand, too. Uh, actually, but that that wasn't my number one go to. But yeah, I was always, I always had some kind of racket going on. Concert promoter did, at age fourteen. I yeah, love that. that's awesome. Did did uh, was your family like that, or or were you just wired that way? A uh, combination of of both. I mean, you know, my mother, uh, my mother did start and build a very successful financial firm. Um, but but when I was younger, she was you know taught junior college accounting at night, um, and my father was a state worker. So. Um, yeah. I think some of it's just in the DNA and then some of it was, you know, at an early age, I, I, I found local music and punk rock and like, right. there's this whole DIY, like do it yourself mentality. Um, so I like, you know, formed bands and recorded music and put out our own CDs and demo tapes. And there's just this like mentality there. So I think some of it was natural. Some of it was watching my mother build a business. So that was a little bit later in life. Um, and a lot of it was just being surrounded by this like alternative music scene where everybody was doing everything themselves. So you you left Southern New Hampshire. You said you were pretty burned out, and then you actually jumped over to the um, you know to for profit side of the house, right? Yeah. And started working for an agency. What what drew you to? You were at Helix, right? Yes, I was at Helix. Yeah, what drew you? What drew me was uh, as Jim Collins, the business author, would say, is hubris born from success. Uh, <laughs> meaning that, like, I knew by 2015 that like I had called the shot correctly on online education. Um, and I was like, okay, like I, I was right. Like in 2011, I came in, I got on this rocket early. I got taken off into space. My career, I was an assistant vice president now in my twenties. Um, you know, huge, like I'd done 30 plus commercials and seven campaigns managing million dollar budgets. Um, so I'd like, I'd like knew that I'd called that shot correctly. Uh, and then transparently, you know, there's a space in our industry called OPM outsourced program management. It's where for-profit companies help manage uh, online programs for nonprofit schools. And right. primarily it's built off of a revenue share model. Um, and I, for a number of reasons, um, thought that that I, that was going to be a space that I could get into. Um, I, w- I was looking for my own, you know, payday of sorts. A lot of those organizations were offering, you know, different kind of packages that included more than just a salary. And I was like, okay, guy, if I can go into an organization and build what I've built before, maybe I can, you know, this will be my chance to get mine kind of mentality, not the healthiest mentality. And and I just called it wrong. Is the narr- I mean, I was only there for a little less than two years, and it was very clear to me early uh, that 2015 was not early for the OPM space, right? The OPM space was built in the late aughts and early teens, 
And by the time I showed up, um, you know, most schools are trying to build it themselves or trying to get out of high rev share long-term contracts. Um, and it was a very challenging two years. And um, it was, it's a very good lesson that like, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not going to call them every time. Uh, and so, uh, but that was really what it was. I thought, you know, if I could do what I do here somewhere else and, and if I can get a piece of the action, maybe I can get mm -hmm. a bigger upside. And, uh, yeah, that didn't exactly go that way. <laughs> what did you take from that? Because uh, so I, if I'm reading it correctly, like the business was declining, right? Yeah, or it was becoming more challenging. It was, anyway. uh, yeah, it was more challenging for sure. Uh, the things that I took away from it was um, leadership at scale. So I, I, you know, I was managing over 40 people at one point, I think 60 people. Um, wow. I moved into a general manager role where I was not just over creative, but I was over all of marketing services. Um, and so that was really, really interesting. And I think I became a, you know, a, a better manager in a lot of ways and even self-management. And so that chapter was great for me in learning, you know, bigger operations and scale, uh, there was challenges with it, um, you know, whether it's you know, just layoffs or other things that are going on. I, I had to lead through a lot of um, obstacles, some of which self-created and it was hard. Uh, but in hindsight, the scale was very significant. The volume of schools was fantastic. So obviously they worked with a portfolio of schools. And so at that time, I'd only worked with UCLA or Southern New Hampshire. You know, when I left there, I had another two dozen schools that I had worked with. And, you know, in our space, everybody's unique, but everybody's 80% yeah. the same. And so it gave me the ability to pick up on pattern recognition from a marketing perspective. What are the strategies and tactics that work for everybody versus the ones that are unique to the institution? Um, so I felt like I left a much more informed marketer. I felt like when I left SNU, I thought I was a world-class creative. When I left Helix, I felt like I think I understand how marketing for online programs really meaningfully works um, in a substantive way. So actually a tremendously informative chapter. Um, not not personally successful or satisfying. It was just a very challenging um, uh, part of my career, but learned a ton. So I think the breadth of experience and probably the biggest lesson I would say is that like, if you want to learn more, do different things. So like UCLA to SNU to Helix couldn't have been more different. And so it really made me much more well-rounded, um, if that makes sense. No, it, it, it totally does. And was this the first time in your career? I mean, you had talked about some other challenges that you faced at UCLA and then, you know, kind of being capped and then at SNHU with the, you know, the first nine months being challenging. But was this, was Helix the first time where you, you felt like, you know, these challenges, were these just the biggest yeah. challenges that you had faced in your career? I'm just trying to figure out, like, how did this impact you at the moment? Sure. So I could, uh, so it's a big question. Let me tell you the first one that came to mind. Uh, this because this yeah. is a mantra that I have today. So today, obviously, I run Canahoma, my own agency. Um, we have a mantra that says only play winnable games, and that's yeah. what informs our new <laughs> business strategy. We have turned yeah. down a lot of work that actually would be quite lucrative because I don't think the client's going to win. And I said, like, I don't think your yeah. programs are going to work. I don't think the market's going to work for this. You're or like you know, we had one person really ready to hire us, big budgets. Could have been great. We've been hire a handful of people. Um, but their expectations for performance weren't realistic. And so it's like, well, we can take this and drag this thing out for 12 to 24 months or longer and then try to course correct their expectations. But I know that that what they want, we can't deliver. And so we always say only play winnable games. The reason why Canon Home is growing so well is because our clients are growing and their clients are growing because we're picking the clients that are capable of growth. Um, Helix 
taught me that like no matter how hard you work, if you're not playing a winnable game, you're not going to win. Uh, there was just some aspects of that work in some areas where it just felt like, I just don't think we're going to make it. Or this, this, whether it's a school or this program or the market, it was even bigger than the organization. Um, that was just, it felt like we were maybe playing an unwinnable game. And like, I was trying to work as hard as I could to push through it. And it's like, there is no other side to this. Um, so that's the, probably the biggest lesson, I guess, at least today that I still use every day is, uh, is only play winnable games. I love that. Only play, you know, we've, we've been talking to a lot of smart people on this pod and, and every, every episode, somebody drops something. I'm like, oh, I've got to go, I got to go think about that next. And I'm yeah. going to think about only play winnable games. I think that is, that is amazing. Yeah. It's the, to me, uh, it's the biggest thing is starting the business, which I know we'll get to in a second was just that like, like I can create the rules. These other jobs, I had all these constraints. I was playing by this. It's like I was playing somebody else's board game and the rules had been developed and this was my piece and this is how I fit. Um, and one of the attractions to to studying my own shop was the fact that like I can create an environment where the rules are mine. Um, and rather than try to win someone else's game, why don't I just create my own game where the odds of winning can be significantly higher? Well, and before you started Kanahoma, I mean, there was a stop at National University and where you were the vice chancellor. So it's just for marketing. What's fascinating to me is like this ping pong thing happening in your career, right? You started on the for-profit side in broadcast news, nonprofit UCLA, I guess nonprofit SNHU, but then you went to the for-profit space and now you're back in the the non non what nonprofit? What drew you back in? Like, why did you jump back into yeah. you know working for an institution like National? Uh, so National University System was really interesting to me at the time for a few reasons. One, um, it was back in house. I had had a lot of success at Southern New Hampshire, and already you know my two years after leaving it, I could look back and was like, wow, like that window in time was was magical. Um, and a piece of that was just that I was in house. I could go deeper. You know, on the agency side, it's really hard. Um, because you can't go as deep with your partners because you're just spread across a larger book of business. So I was like, okay, I can go back. I was starting to become open to going back in-house. Um, I, I was open to a CMO-esque uh, role. So at National University System, I was vice chancellor of marketing, so essentially CMO. But they were also a system. So, um, you know, they they owned and operated multiple universities, all nonprofit. They had, you know, K through 12 nonprofits, a charter school system, uh, an online high school. So I was like, okay, like I'm going to go in-house. But I also get to work with this book of business. Um, and I knew that I had like runway and support from them. So, you know, I you know had the support from the from the leadership and the board to build something uh, that so we, we were able to build an in-house agency um, that at the time we called NUSA. Um, and like literally like uh, was, I was able to build out a team and structure. And, I, and again, it goes back to winnable games. It felt like this was winnable. They, you know, they were facing headwinds just because the market was getting more mature, uh, but they had a lot going in their favor. They had a strong brand, a legacy. Uh, they had substantial students. So you know, they were they were large and scale matters. I'd learned that um, during my previous chapter was just that, you know, small schools, small budgets, it's really hard to win. Um, bigger budgets, you just get to learn faster, you know? And so yeah. it's not that you're better. This is the lesson from SNU is that you don't have to be better. You just have to learn faster. And that's the fastest path to becoming better. Um, like how fast is your feedback loop? That's the question. And when you're going out and spending a million bucks a week, your feedback loop is pretty fast. And that was the lesson from <laughs> Southern New Hampshire, right? That you know, yeah. they could learn in a week what a smaller school would, with a million dollar budget would take a year to learn. And so it's like, well, you're not just ahead of them now. You're ahead of them at like a, a rate of 50x. And like that's how SNU becomes, you know, a hundred. I mean, SNU's going to start 100,000 new students this year. 
Like they do that because they're learning faster than everybody else. And so I felt like, okay, National University System had a bunch of those factors. And then truthfully, it was in San Diego and I wanted to get back to Southern California. um, And I was ready to try to stop moving and settle in for a while. Uh, Because this is still, you know, it's an amazing thing about, uh, you know, the post-pandemic world is now you can live and work remotely almost anywhere. But at the time, you know, if I wanted to grow my career in higher ed, the biggest career lesson that doesn't hold water anymore for me was um, if you want to grow your career as fast as you possibly can, which was candidly totally my motivation for a long time. If you want to grow your career as fast as you possibly can, then don't restrict your opportunities to a single geography. Because like how many opportunities are coming up within 100 miles of where you live? Versus if you say, I'm willing to move anywhere. I mean, that's why I moved to Manchester, New Hampshire. Then I moved back to LA. Then I moved to Exeter. Then I moved back. To, you know, it's like I, I moved back to LA. I moved all over the place. I moved to Utah. Uh, you moved to San Diego. I did that because like this was the best job I could get from any organization in the entire country. Um, and so one of these coming up in San Diego was like, oh my gosh, there's not that many opportunities down here. You know, if I don't go for this one now, when's the next one coming up? Um, of this kind of size and substance. And so that was part of what pushed the, pushed the leap to, to make that move when I did. What did you pick up at National? I mean, it, it, did you were you able to expand on the, the stuff that you learned at, uh, at SNU? Yeah, so absolutely did. So I, I was able to learn like so much. I feel like um, my personal leadership, so I was, I was still meditating. I was in therapy. Um, my, I think I was a little more dialed in with myself. And so I learned a lot about myself. I, I feel like I learned how to, to start to solve operational limitations in my leadership. Um, I was always terrible at delegation, um, and I was able to put in a system for that um, and a mantra for that. So my system is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a twist off the Eisenhower method of either like any, any situation that comes up is either you do it, you don't do it, you delegate it, or you defer, meaning you're going to make right. a decision later on. And my biggest right. weakness was either that I would say I'd do it and I wouldn't get to it. So it'd be I would really be deferring it, but I'd be saying I'd do it, you know, or I wouldn't delegate it to somebody else. And so do it, don't do it, you know, delegate, defer. And I knew that every time someone came in my office with a situation, I had to pick one of those four. That was like, okay, that's a good system me- mentality for me. Um, and it just kind of put in place that. The other one was like, if you ever have a problem at work, um, so someone comes in and says like, hey, we have a problem then always the situation is essentially that either like we didn't follow the process or there isn't a process. And so it's like, did we follow the process? Yes or no. Did it work? If it's like we followed the process and it worked, we solve a problem. Well, then we, we actually have to fix the process. Did we follow the process? It didn't work. Okay. That means know that is there no process for this? And so it became this like right. system mentality for me a little bit. And so um, that was just another piece uh, that really kind of like, for me, it was like, I started to get to this place where, I could try to look at myself a little bit like a machine. I, I read Principles by Ray Dalio like four times. Uh, and systems thinking was probably the biggest personal takeaway. And that came from scale. You know, again, I had a huge team under me and a large budget. And um, I felt like I was finally finding my footing at that chapter maker. Still still plenty of mistakes. Uh, but it felt like I was solving some of the systemic things. Um, and I was getting to a place where like I was seeing things much differently. Even like... Um, you know, don't treat the symptom, treat the disease. So like when someone comes in and we have this issue, it's like, oh no, like, you know, we had, we had, maybe we had this issue with this campaign. It's like, well, that's the symptom. What's the disease? The disease is way up the ladder. We launched this thing two weeks ago without a QA process. And, you know, we didn't have this. So it's like, what's, I just started right. to see things much differently. And I think that just came with, with age and self-reflection. Uh, so that was a really, for me, a empowering chapter from a, 
like a managerial perspective, if that makes sense. Have have you always, it, it, you seem to have systems, Seth. Have you always had those systems or has it just been from failure, learn, reflection, stuff like that? So uh, definitely didn't always. It was probably starting at Southern New Hampshire um, when I had that mentor, Steve Hodouts, who's still a mentor today. Um, he started to recommend a lot of books. So he introduced me to Jim Collins, um, you know, and, and so I read like as much Jim Collins as I could, good to great, you know, how the mighty fall yeah. um, and uh, built to last. And so it was probably at SNU, I started just, I read everything I could get my hands on. So I was, I was churning through 40, 50 books a year pretty easily. Um, plus I was reading tons of blog posts. Um, and so it started there with like this, just like trying to learn through it and then um, trying to talk through what was happening. So like, even like in my therapy in San Diego, I would have a problem at work, um, a frustration with someone, or felt like, I, like I'd like literally go to therapy, I'd be, I'm mad, right? I'm mad about this. So I couldn't have, and I would like work through it and try to figure out what was it, what happened, um, how can I solve for it? So it evolved over time, but it was not something that I, that came naturally. It yeah. came from me consuming other people's information and realizing like, I could shortcut my way to being more effective if I just listened to people smarter than me and then applied the things that they're recommending and seeing how they work. So like, you know, truthfully, most of the books I've read, I can go back to like one or two things, but like, you know, even like on my shelf, I have a few hundred books, but like thinking in bets by Annie Duke, she's just like world-class poker player, but she talks all about how um, every decision is a bet and that there is luck in life. And that like, you oh. can't judge success based on the outcome. This was like blow it blew my mind that you can't judge the success of your decision-making based on the outcome of your decision-making. You have to judge your success based on your ability to assess the information you had at the time. Because every once in a while, even though you have a 90% chance of winning, you still lose right. what was the right decision. And like that was an example. I read that book and that totally changed the way I thought about marketing. I used to think like if it didn't work in marketing, then it was a failure. And it's like, well, no, was that the right decision with the information you had? And then I would just start to see things differently. Um, even like marketing's job is not to do the right thing. It's just to get you one step closer. So like uh, I, at Southern New Hampshire, I worked with a guy, Steve Canarian, who talked about he was ahead of day. He said, but where, the, where, where there's smoke, there's fire. And he's like, when you do marketing, it's not your job to get to the right answer. There is no truth. Your job is to get more information. So the next decision you make is more informed than the last one. So that's the only job of data is to make every future decision more informed than the last. And I was like, oh, that's so liberating. I used to think you'd like analyze the data until it perfectly told you this is what happened. Um, and he's like, no, that's not it. It's just, it's just to make a smarter decision. So data informed, not data driven. So lessons like that were from a combination of like books, podcasts, and then great people around me that were smarter than me that that put up with a lot of my questions and then <laughs> applying it and self-reflecting. Somewhere in there, there was a system yeah. where it felt like I started to see things that way. And now like for the poor people that work with me, they hear me say all those things. Like, they, like they've heard, don't play, you know, only play winnable games probably like, you know, 500 times in the past year. But I, now I'm in a rhythm where I do think like a system is emerging organically, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, so we've covered a lot of ground and now let's like dig into Kanahoma because yeah. you clearly like so much development was happening along the way. And yeah. thank you for being like just incredibly transparent about it. In full disclosure, I, when you started Kanahoma, I reached out, I was like, hey, we got this problem to solve. And you, you know, we worked with you and you were yeah. absolutely like you and your team were amazing. Talk about like how you formed that business and like what was it like? Because you're what two, two and a half, three years in now. You were two years and three months. So yeah, yeah, yeah. two years and three months. November yeah. 2020. So I, I knew for some time that I thought I wanted to do my own thing. The, the real answer is I've 
I have always said that I want to take this as far as it can go. And this meaning my career, my work, I don't really know. I've always said, I want to take this as far as it can go. So at one point I was like, well, now that I'm vice chancellor, like, do I become a college president? And I actually participated in some college presidential searches and had some interviews. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to be a college president. Like, that's just not my vibe. Um, you know, I don't want to have to cover the tattoos and, and you know, be the <laughs> politician that comes with that. And I respect people that can do that role. This is not my cup of tea. And so I was like, well, what's next? Um, is it when I become a CMO somewhere else or otherwise like that's it. I've hit a ceiling and I'm just going to be a CMO for the rest of my career. And I, at the time I was, you know, in my early thirties when I took that job, so it's like, that's it. I'm just going to do this for 20 or 30 years. And so to me, then it was like, I, I think I might want to build my own thing and, you know, run my own company. My thesis was that, you know, industry expertise was invaluable from an agency perspective, but I felt the majority of the agencies in the space that I'd worked with were just a little subpar. The teams they built didn't actually have the experience, even if the founder did. Um, and I didn't know that they delivered. So it's kind of like, I just think there's room and market for a new fresh entrant, especially one that leans on the non-traditional online side. And so I kind of just put that out in the universe, I guess. I made a vision board, which is hanging in my office um, and you know thought about that. And then um, I got approached by UCLA and through a, a long story, making it short, I got a long extended uh, contract with them to be like my first consulting client. And so, you know, my wife was like, well, you know, if you're really going to do this, you don't turn down UCLA, a chance to go back to an institution that you were part of uh, to work on that side. So I spent, you know, nine or 10 months with UCLA um, consulting. And that's what gave me the confidence to like leave a, a very like high level executive job that obviously like, you know, I have bills and mortgage payments and other things. And so that was my like transition off was, okay, I have a consulting relationship lined up with, you know, the most popular university in the history of education. Uh, and I made that move. But when I started, I didn't know, am I building an agency or a consulting company? Um, you know, my first few clients were consulting. And so first I was like, am I going to even make enough money to pay the bills? Or you know, am I going to have to like liquidate my retirement to cover stuff? And I was really like nervous relatively early on in the first three or four months. I was like, okay, like I can make money as like, doing consulting. Um, but I really, what I really wanted to do was build an agency. I felt like, um, you know, an agency model was more exciting to me. The scale of impact was was better. And transparently, I was just really scared that as long as I run a consulting company, I'm selling my time, and that means that like the only way for me to make money is to work more. Um, and I'd like to make a good living and provide for my family, but I'd like to be around for my family too. And so I right. knew I really wanted to make the agency side of it work. So even at one point early on, I was uh, I. Had, was I had sold like 40 hours of consulting so far a week and I was doing that and I got approached by someone about being a part-time CEO of an ed tech company and stepping in and like maybe you could do it at 20, 30 hours and it would have been unbelievable money, like way more money than I've ever made in my entire life when you combine, I'm like more if I said, I'm like, this is crazy, right? Like I left this job four months ago and I'm going to make like two or three times what I was making. Um, but I turned it down uh, because when my wife and I were talking about it, it was just like, if I do this, I'm not starting an agency. I'm selling my time and now I got to go work 70 hours a week. And for what? Like, do I really want, is money really the motivator here? Um, and so uh, turn that down and like, like the next week a client came and wanted agency services and I scaled up and hired and kind of have been moving into the agency model ever since. And so when I started, it was wandering. I knew I wanted to do my own thing, but I didn't know what it was. And so either it was poor planning or on the flip side, I'd say that I, I've let <laughs> I, my whole career, I have let opportunity dictate what I do and where I go. So like Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs says, don't pursue your passion, pursue opportunity. 
uh, and like bring your passion with you, being like become passionate about the opportunities that are provided and presented. Uh, I didn't want to work in TV news, but I took the TV news gig. Uh, I didn't know UCLA was going to be what happened when I got to LA. I made the most of it. Um, you know, the whole way across my career, it's been the case. So even with, with Kinahoma, when I started Kinahoma, I knew I wanted an agency, but I was just going to let this thing become whatever the market told me it wanted. Um, and thankfully, it's it's wanted what I wanted to build, which is an agency model. It just took a little bit of time out of the gate to kind of find that footing. And yeah. now, you know, 2023, how many people work at Kinahoma? So we have, we have 26 full-time employees. We just onboarded two more this morning. Uh, employees 25 and 26 started today. So yeah, we're averaging an employee a month uh, at this point. Wow. So that it's so, you know, really incredible growth for you personally. What has that meant? Uh, so on one hand, it's, it's felt like a huge achievement. Like I've built a big company that has 26 employees. <clears throat> um, that's been amazing. I'll tell you the things I loved. Um, I, I've felt like I've been able to build the company I want to build in some ways. Um, you know, we, we have great benefits. We pay for a hundred percent of health insurance premium for employees, spouses, dependents, a 401k with a 4% match. Yeah. Um, we have the best health plan offered from Blue Shield, like nationwide. Like we, we go all out. <clears throat> excuse me. We priced it that way from the beginning. I, I want to be a good employer. You know, our lawyers were like, "Oh, you can you can take your four percent match on the four hundred one k and lock it up for two or three years. That way, people leave. They lose their that piece of the retirement." I was like, "No, give it to them day one. Like they vest right away." Um, yeah, I yeah remove mandatory arbitration agreements. Like I I really like I I grew up in a liberal pro labor family, and it's been really cool to feel like maybe I can try to be a better boss um, and build a better business. I don't know that I'm always successful in that. Uh, in fact, I know that I'm not. Uh, but <laughs> I'm when I look back, like that's been really satisfying. Also really satisfying has been working with great partners. We have some incredible clients that really are like really appreciative. One of the things I forgot about was, you know, when you're in-house, it's sort of this, um, it's a little bit like an arranged marriage in some capacities. But when someone hires you on the outside, they have to already clear the hurdle of like truly having a respect and appreciation for your skills and acumen because they could choose you or other people. And so these relationships are built on like, you know, mutual appreciation and respect. And so the majority of them are quite satisfying to like help good people win um, and then to see them grateful for it. So the challenges have been I'm working around the clock. Um, you know, I was not sleeping, working nights, weekends. I had health scares because I wasn't resting enough. I ended up in the ER. A lot of that, not to oversimplify, was because I was too scared to scale the business. And so when I started, we were project-based work. I've migrated almost all of it into retainer work. Um, but even still, it's like, you know, I've been nervous. Like, well, what happens if the clients leave and if other clients don't come? Um, and so because of that, I hoarded cash. Um, and the cash is in the business, and that's great in a recession to have it. And so I, I think we're in a good position. But like, I, I wish I could go back and make less money the last two years and have hired sooner and have slept at night and gotten out of the way and gotten myself out of the process. Um, but I, that was just fear. It was totally a fear mentality. And not just fear for me, but like I'm hiring people now and they're expecting jobs to come up. And, you know, my contracts expire at the end of fiscal years and people have to choose if they want to re-up or not. And I'm responsible for for providing opportunity to people that are providing for their own families. And so I have gotten my sea legs under me in many ways two years in, but that was the hardest part. So I right. overworked myself simply because even though I had the resources, I was too scared to deploy them. And so I thought I'll just do all this work so that way if the weather shifts and gets worse, 
I, I can like, we'll be okay. And in hindsight, it's like, well, you overworked yourself. So you're not okay anyway. So it was just, uh, that's probably the biggest like flub on my part. And we did take a couple of clients we shouldn't have worked with and some small project-based stuff that we didn't, but like those lessons are small. We just learned that the biggest lesson mm-hmm. was like resource allocation and getting out of the business. Like you don't hire great people and then look over their shoulder. And I think I did that for a good chunk of our tenure so far, just out of insecurity and nervousness related to scaling and maintaining revenue. Seth, I, I want to be respectful of, of your time. We've, you've given given us a lot of information to process, and you know, as we close the pod, I, I you know, you've had a heck of a journey. Like your path has been really cool. You know, not just geographically bouncing around the country, but just you know the twists and turns that you take and the lessons that you learned. But you know, you you strike me as a very reflective person at this point in your life, right? Yeah. As we all age, we get more reflective. Like if you could walk the same path again, would you, or would you take a different path? So, I mean, I would walk the same path completely. I think all the bumps and bruises and lessons I needed to learn, uh, I'd I'd love to learn them sooner um, (laughs) because I think we're all a little impatient, but I wouldn't change any of it. I feel extremely blessed uh, and extremely lucky and privileged. Like the life I have is great. Uh, I have a wonderful team. I have an incredible partner and and a great, healthy, crazy two-year-old daughter. (laughs) <laughs> um, no, I have, I have no complaints about life at all. Um, you know, I, if I slow down pieces in the present and it's all there for me. So, uh, I wouldn't definitely wouldn't change a thing. Right. Seth, where can people learn more about you? Where do you want to send them? Uh, so if they want to learn more about, uh, our, the company I run, it's canahoma.com, K-A-N-A-H-O-M-A.com. But otherwise I'm Seth Odell pretty much everywhere. So on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, you know, uh, Twitter and LinkedIn are probably the two places I'm most active. So find me there, but people can reach out. I also have a newsletter. If you go to canahoma.com, I, uh, it's a, a weekly newsletter they put out. So any of those totally work. Uh, if you're only going to do one, I'd say, uh, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn. I, I tend to use that as a good resource. So I'd love to love to have you in the network. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks. Seth. Yeah. Seth Odell, thank you so much. And, you know, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Leadership Backstory. Make sure to subscribe from your favorite podcast player and leave us a review if you like what you hear. We appreciate you sharing your feedback with other listeners. Peter Barron and Brendan Schneider host the Leadership Backstory. Catch you on the next episode.